You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning, everyone. So last week we started looking at this essay by Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson um, entitled, What Are We Doing When We Pray? Uh, the link will be up uh, by the podcast for uh, the uh, uh, millions of our viewers listening worldwide. Um, but uh, So we started this essay last week, and we spent a good portion of our time last week uh, uh, talking about, and it's very interesting because um, the, the, the assumption or the assertion that Rabbi Artson makes at the beginning of the essay is we pray better than we theologize, theologize. Uh, meaning to say that um, that that often um, the the um, the way in which Jews um, are classically have been trained to pray, um, and also our sort of natural human uh, instinct to pray, and it's uh, and uh, and Rabbi Artson says this at the beginning, and I think it's uh, it's it's really true. There's something um, synonymous with the experience of being human uh, and praying. Um, and I was actually, uh, um, the past couple of days, I was at a, a conference uh, um, uh, for a, a, a fellowship called Rabbis Without Borders, which I, in which I'm participating, which is run by an organization called CLAW. And we spent a good part of the, um, the these two days, we have several two-day se- um, seminars over the course of the year. This seminar was uh, uh, very focused on... Um, on the sociology of American religion and uh, and 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 American Judaism, um, so looking at a whole range of studies and statistics about what the American religious landscape looks like, and one of the interesting things about the American religious landscape, um, and and sociologists have been unpacking this for a few years now, uh, it was really brought to light in the uh, um, 2008 uh, Pew study on American religion is what they call the rise of the nuns. That's not N-U-N-S. Uh, there's uh, not a uh, rise of, uh, of, uh, of people wearing habits, but the rise of the N-O-N-E-S. Meaning to say, if you ask a person, um, what religion do you affiliate with, um, or what religion do you consider yourself, they'll answer none of the above. Um, in uh, in the 2008 study, if I'm not, I'm going to get probably get these uh, statistics right, but we all know that 78% of statistics are made up on the spot anyway. Um, but it's something like in the 2008 study, it's something like um, uh, um, um, you're on the spot. Something like. No, no, no. Lies, damn lies. Yeah, lies. No, no, no. I want to get it right because um, I, I have them all jumbled in my head. Um, a very high percentage. <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. Um, the longer you delay, the less we'll believe you. Just yeah. come out with something. What's that? Take no, no, no. It's not that high. Um, it's a. Uh, um, it's no. It's a. Uh, it's it's probably about uh, a third. Okay, a third of uh, of uh, of um, Americans um, uh, call them call themselves nuns. Um, the the percentage is substantially higher among uh, millennials. 
um, so uh, and and, uh, and the generation right above them. So um, uh, closer to 50, 60 percent uh, among uh, among millennials, people who uh, um, uh, would answer none of the above. But the interesting thing is not necessarily the rise of the nuns, although that's interesting. And and by the way, that doesn't mean. Uh, what it doesn't mean is uh, people who don't care about religion or religious experiences. That's what you would immediately think when you hear people who answer none. But it turns out that a, that a very high percentage, even among the people who call themselves none, uh, a very high percentage believe in God and say they pray regularly, even daily. Okay? So that means that there are... Uh, uh, growing numbers of people out there who say that they that if you ask them what religion they are, they say I'm not a, a practitioner of any religion. But you ask them, um, do you believe in God? They say yes, overwhelmingly. And you ask them, do you pray regularly? They say yes, overwhelmingly. You ask them, have you attended a, a religious service uh, um, uh, of any sort recently? They say yes, overwhelmingly. You say, do you have any kind of religious? Pr- What's that? Or bar mitzvah. Uh, no, 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 not not including a wedding or bar mitzvah. Uh-huh. Not including a wedding or bar mitzvah. Um, if you, uh, you know, if you if if you ask them, um, uh, do you, you know, if you could have like a cluster of uh, of religious practices, they'll say it. But the, but they are what uh, um, uh, one of the teachers of the conference, uh, Rabbi Erwin Kula, who was here a few years ago, he calls them, uh, 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 and he calls, and this is true people of people, by the way, who are not in the nun category. He calls them uh, benders, blenders, uh, movers, and switchers. Uh, right, so uh, people who, uh, who 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 see their religious identity and um, and religious boundaries boundaries as being uh, bendable, as being pliable, uh, people who are comfortable blending uh, traditions from various religions. Um, by the way, that's something that Jews have always done. Right, um, so um, you know, just as we were talking about Talis a, a minute ago, right? Um, uh, uh, archaeologists uh, tell us uh, very, very comfortably that uh, that the practice of uh, of, of tzitzit and especially of tzitzit of the blue fringe on the tzitzit was a practice of Egyptian royalty, right? Which was uh, which was uh, adopted by the Israelite priesthood. Um, and then ultimately by the averages relate on the talit, right? So the um, the idea that we you know blend um, religious traditions uh, uh, into our own um, is something that's been going on in Judaism for a long time, and is very pronounced in the American uh, uh, landscape as well, right? So you go to um, an evangelical synagogue, uh, synagogue. You could go to an- some of them. Yeah. Well, fine. You can go to, but you can go to an evangelical church, and you'll see people wearing talas. And in fact, um, this is like blew my mind. There are more people, more Christians, who wear talas on a regular basis than there are Jews. Yes, no joke. Right? You turn on TBN, you'll see some of that. So, um, you know, so this is this is the the the, the blending, right? The, um, yoga in synagogues, right? Um, there are there are half a million there are half a million Hindus in the United States, but there are 16 million Americans who practice yoga. Okay, so that's that's the blending, right? And then there's switchers, right? So people who who switch from one religious identity to uh, I have the another. statistics here. Oh, you do? Okay. 28% have left the faith in which they were, this is Pew, in which they were raised in favor of another religion or no religion at all. 
if change in affiliation from one type of Protestantism to another is included, 44%. Yeah. That's but that's people, that's people who've dropped out. Um, no, or switch. Yeah, or the, the, so or switch. But what? But what about what about people who say none of the, the number above? Of people say they're unaffiliated with any particular faith today. Sixteen point one percent is more than double the number who said they were unaffiliated with any religion as children. Ah, okay, so that's Wait, what. And among yeah, the eighteen yeah. to twenty-nine, thirty-three percent. One in four. So one in four. Oh, okay. Well, why the surprise with the interfaith marriages and coupling? I think. I think there should be no surprise in these oh. statistics when you when you when you, you don't have to be a sociologist. Right. There, there, there's, there's no there's no surprise at all. But you you should know uh, this is but this is a little bit ancillary to what I wanted to bring this up. But um, it's not just a Jewish issue, right? Uh, um, uh, right. It, it, it was unthinkable a generation ago for a Methodist to marry a Presbyterian, right? Um, and now it is totally culturally normative for, for uh, there to be intermarriage between different Protestant denominations, you know, between Protestants and Catholics, heaven for fend, right? Um, between Jews and non-Jews, right? So... Um, so it, right, 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 right. So you, so that's exactly right. In the Jewish community, before before we uh, really realized the extent of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews, it was anathema for an Ashkenazi Jew to marry a Sephardic Jew or uh, or a, uh, a Misnagic right, a German Jew to to marry a Russian Jew, a Misnagdish Jew to marry a Hasidic Jew. Kugel, not Kigel. Right, exactly. Right, right. And so, and now, now we would jump for. Jews Joy if our children married uh, a, a, a a Russian Jew, even though we're German Jews, because they're marrying Jews, right? So, so um, it's it, it, it's it, all of this is very interesting stuff. The, but the reason I wanted to bring it up is that uh, that even among that sixteen point one percent who are nuns, or the higher percentage um, among, um, I remember there was some, the, the one in four thing. I remember, but there was also a one in three dimension of the 18 to 29 year olds. Um, yeah, that's okay. Um, uh, I'll have to go back. I have it in my office now. Um, but, the, but the point I wanted to make is that those people who we would call you know, unreligious, unaffiliated, whatever you want to label them as, they still are believing in God and they still are praying. So there is something fundamentally human about the, about the, about the desire to pray, the act of prayer. Um, and so we do it, even though um, if you ask people, um, uh, if you really push people to formulate a uh, a, 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 a sophisticated, uh, um, uh, logically thought through, rational approach to their theology, right? To, to like to ask them to like really spell out what they believe about God. Um, may not be people around this table, but most people would not necessarily agree with some of the assumptions that, uh, that, that underlie uh, the, the act of praying, right? So, uh, I mean, just as one example, right, uh, I'll be picking on you because you've asked me this a number of times, and Ralph has asked this as well, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we pray in the Amida, right, uh, we, we praise God as the, the one who raises the dead, right? Um, and 
Um, I wonder if you would ask, may, uh, again, maybe not pe- the, the saintly around this table, but if you would ask uh, most people, do you believe in a God who can or one day will raise the dead? Most people, I would bet, would say, who are, who are non-Christians who don't believe that this has already happened, right? Um, uh, uh, most people would say no, or most people would say that's a metaphor, right? If you, if you would say, you know, um, does, does, God re- does God answer prayers in ways that you can identify um uh um i would uh, well I, if well, you ask it Ralph would tell you yes he is right if you right yes. if you ask it in the theoretical uh to most people they might say yes if you ask it in the practical right so has god answered your prayers um most people m- might say no and then if you ask them well why wh- why is that my guess is they wouldn't say because i'm too much of a sinner Right, right. They wouldn't say that. But that what's that? Because I haven't prayed hard enough, maybe. Maybe. Maybe they would say that. Alex was on crooked, or all right. So no, but Ralph's example, and it's an interesting one, is I I pray for health for Janet. She recovered, so God must have God answered my prayer. Right, but then He didn't answer others, I guess. Right, so others have prayed right. for similar oh, yeah. things yeah. and haven't. Right. He's very particular. Right. Specific. So, so then you right. So then you get into the the problematics of it. So then, even if you do say like like Ralph does, right? God answered my prayer. So then, why doesn't God answer? Why why didn't why didn't God answer the prayers of the parents in Sandy Hook who prayed for their kids' safety that day? Right. Um, what did they do wrong? Right. Um, you know. So if you really push it. Uh, past the past the personal uh, to because because theology isn't only personal it has to be general right um, and if you really push it a lot of the assumptions that uh, that that uh, um, that that underlie the um, the 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 approach most of us uh, take to prayer um, s- many of them fall by the wayside well yeah. that's an interesting comment that prayer can't be personal I'm mean, not prayer. Religion has to be general, not personal. No, I didn't say that. I said, I said theology. Theology. Yeah, theology. theology. Okay. Because it's a level of abstraction that can't be just so about your correct. experience. I mean, your experience of the world obviously will inform it, right? But, um, but, it, but it has to be generalizable, right? So I can't, I, I can't just say, uh, my theology is that God will protect me, right? Um, it has to be um, God protects people who are uh, tall and uh, have blue eyes and wear a tie, right? Um, and, and, and the reason that other people, you know, um, uh, um, other people who we perceive as being good, bad things happen to them is because they're not tall, they don't have blue eyes, or they don't wear a tie. And then the theology gets problematized when I find somebody who fits that description for whom... God didn't answer their prayers, right? Or God didn't protect them. So that, that's what I'm saying. Theology has to be uh, generalized, right? It has to has to work uh, broadly. If it doesn't, there's something wrong with the theology, right? Um, that doesn't mean religion can't be personal. It doesn't mean that your relationship with God can't be personal. Um, uh, but if you were to bring that to a different level of abstraction of, you know, in terms of, uh, of the, like, rational uh, construct of it, um, uh, it has to be generalizable, um, so that's 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 what I mean, um, and and so uh, and so prayer. That's that that may be one of the reasons why why prayer uh, for for the nuns for anybody prayer works on a personal. But when you stop to reflect on it, 
You know, when, uh, when you start to ask the question, well, why didn't God answer this prayer that I had? Right? Why didn't God heal the person that I was praying for? Or why, um, why were the prayers of X, Y, or Z person unaffected? Um, or, or, um, or, or any of the questions that, that you could raise about prayer. Or why didn't I feel anything this time when I was praying? And that's a personal question. Um, when you start to ask any of those questions, um, uh, uh, then that's where theology becomes important. Um, because it's about more than just you there. It's about what God is um, in general, not just what God is in relation to you. Um, and, the, and, and when you actually pick apart the theology, um, the, the, the theology um, doesn't always work um, with, uh, with, with, the, with, with the assumptions that underlie the act of prayer. And that's the paragraph we spent a lot of time on last week, and what it looks like we're spending a lot of time this week. Um, right, that, uh, on page two, despite the real motives we bring to prayer, most people have been taught to think of God as unchanging, all-knowing, and in complete control. If God is unchanging, that means God must remain unaffected by our prayers. And an unchanging God doesn't care how hard you pray for something that's going wrong in your life, right? God's mind is already made up about that thing, right? And if God is um, all-knowing, then God knows what we're going to say before we say it. Right? So God knows I'm going to be praying for the healing of the so-and-so before I open my mouth. So what's the point of opening my mouth? Right? And, uh, and, um, uh, um, uh, and if God is in complete control, then whatever will be, will be whether or not we pray. Okay? So, if the situation is already known and the outcome is already determined, then perhaps the only role left for prayer is to sto- stroke God's insatiable ego. We repeat, you are great, you are great, to try to appease divine narcissism. He's being, I think, a, a, a little bit, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, he's, he's, he's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, provocative. He's trying, deliberately provocative, right? Um, to try to appease divine narcissism. After all, our dominant theologies already precluded the possibility of God needing our prayers, changing because of our prayer, or modifying the foreknown outcome because of us. And so the only remaining function of prayer seems to be abject fawning. Right? Maybe that's why there's so much abject fawning in Jewish prayer. Because we know that some of those other things may not actually work. Right? So we'll just praise God. Right? Frankly, don't you often feel that sentiment is what most of the prayers in the prayer book express? Right? And I, I, I mean, I've had, you know, not only if you felt it in prayer, I mean, I study with someone uh, the prayer book uh, uh, daily, and, uh, and, and, you've been, and we've been studying with Rabbi Kiefer too, and on some level, you know, if you really stop to look at the, the prayer book kind of uh, uh, in sequence, um, it does start to feel in some ways, it, not necessarily when you're in the act of prayer, but if you like look at it objectively, it does start to look like an exercise in tedium. You're saying basically the same things over and over and over again about how great God is. Um, there's something undignified about the whole enterprise. And yet, as I said, people pray as though, right? and and this I think is really really, uh, true, people pray as though God does care about us and our sentiments, as if our words have an impact, as if the dialogue is real and the relationship transformative and desired. Our hearts already intuit what our ideology obscures. In other words, um, we feel that God 
uh, cares about what we have to say, that God's mind could be changed by what we have to say, that the outcome could be made different by what we say, um, even though if we stop to reflect on it, um, uh, it, it, it may not work out. Perhaps the problem then is not with our practice, but with our ideas. Perhaps our challenge in prayer is to articulate the conceptual frame that honors the urgings of our heart and the yearnings of our souls. Um, in other words, maybe the problem that many people have in prayer, and in Jewish prayer specifically, is that um, we're thinking about it in the wrong way. We're approaching it in the wrong way. We, we feel the urge to pray. We feel compelled to open up the book. Um, but the assumptions that many of us bring to that book maybe are the wrong set of assumptions. That's what he's arguing. And so I mentioned process theology a little bit last time. That's the construct through which he's going to address this. Process theology offers a different filter through which the reality of prayer seems much more straightforward. Recall that the process understanding... I mentioned, I talked a little bit about the, the uh, background of process theology last time, right? Um, be, um, was a, a, a philosophical idea developed by a, a mathematician turned philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead in the... Um, um, uh, I believe early 20th century, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, um, and uh, was uh, uh, developed in, in the realm of theology by a guy named Charles Hartshorn. Rabbi Artsin is probably the first uh, Jewish thinker to very explicitly and wholeheartedly embrace the process concepts, but there have been a number of Jewish thinkers that have been influenced by this by similar sets of ideas. Mordechai Kaplan, for example, Harold Schulweis, both of the Kushners, um, even in many ways, uh, even even though it, uh, it wasn't really yet a, a major school of thought, um, um, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, there's there's a lot of resonance I think with uh, with Martin Buber's philosophy. So anyway, uh, and what process uh, um, identifies um, is that God is the one who makes all relationship possible, the one who generates all the options the future offers and empowers each and every one of us as we are where we are to take the optimal next step if we so choose. Right. So the the the. Um, sense of process theology is that um, is that we are not um, substances we are processes in other words the the fact that I am um, I look like a solid entity right now that you identify as Michael is only because um, our 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 biology has um, has uh, has trained us to see the world that way because it's uh, it makes it useful to capture food if you think of your food as a solid substance that you can identify, right? But in, in reality, I'm actually uh, more of like a more like a liquid or a gas. I have permeable boundaries. If you were to watch a time lapse photo of me, right, um, you would see that as being true, right? I'm actually not the same person um, uh, every single day. I have many uh, characteristics that transfer over from one day to the next. Um, which is why I you re, uh, experience me as the same me in many ways today that I am tomorrow, but in fact I'm actually a, a, a different person tomorrow than I am today. So we're all fluid entities. Um, but in the in in the world of objects, in the world of substances, which is what most philosophy has uh, um, has has taught us, how most philosophy has taught us to see the world, it means that we're like one object and God is another object. Our uh, our our challenge in prayer is to try to move that other object, right? To try to convince that object to help move us in some direction or to help change 
our nature, to change, help change our substance in some way, right? To make me richer, to make me healthier, to make whatever, right? Um, what process theology suggests is that if we're not substance, if we're not substantial, if we're processes, then what? Then 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 there is actually no separation, no radical separation between me and you and the air and uh, and the sun and this table there is there is some degree of separation right but uh, but we're actually fluid processes we uh, we we actually interact with each other on every single level right the fact that I'm speaking to you right now is actually changing your if you're listening is actually changing your biology it's making imprints on your brain right which means that you're a different person after this session than you were before and it's because of me so we're actually interacting and all those levels and it, and uh, and by the way the same is true in the other direction right so and so what that means is if we're in that kind of cosmos then uh, God is part of that uh, um, cosmological picture as well and that means that uh, that 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 God works in us with us and through us um, to, uh, to to help us become the next thing that we're going to become whatever that is right we're always in a process of becoming Right, so what that means is that God isn't exclusively an agent that acts upon us from the outside, that breaks the rules to change who we are. God is that which helps us become whatever we're becoming. But the challenge is that God offers us um, the, 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 um, the, the next best possible step to become the next best possible iteration of what we can be. Right, so God doesn't have uh, um, pers- um, God doesn't have coercive power in that way. God can't act on us to change us, but God has persuasive power. God can hold open the right options in the future for us to follow if we so choose. That's what he's saying, right? So God, I, yeah. Uh, when I heard, I actually heard him speak about this a number of years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, two things he mentioned. Well, one thing he mentioned, and one thing somebody else mentioned. The thing he mentioned is. You have to remove from your mind the Rosh Hashanah theology of God sitting on the throne. Right. And that's how everything works. Right. Uh, which is kind of what we read in the Rule of Progress, but that's, you know, so much of the high holiday theology, and that's really what so many of us are first taught as kids, really. Right. Uh, the other thing is, I heard this described by somebody else as Kaplan on steroids, which <laughs> I thought was a great description. <laughs> Yeah. So I think, and I think that the difference is that Kaplan didn't believe in a personal God in any way. God was just a force. Um, Rabbi Artson, I think, um, that, and this may be the steroids thing. Um, Rabbi Artson doesn't think God is just a force. Um, God uh, also has a, a, a personal <coughs> component as well, right? So in other words, um, God exists within creation. That's the force of Kaplan. Um, uh, Kaplan called God the power that makes for salvation. Right? Um, but it's just a, a natural energy that you can tap into. Rabbi Artson, I think, would go a little bit further that God is also, God uh, is not just within the world, God is without the world too. Right? So God transcends everything that we experience as existence uh, as well. So God can, in some ways, act upon creation. God has acted upon creation, but uh, just not in a supernatural way. Um, Rabbi Artson, he, he says it's, it's super comma natural exclamation point. Right. Um, so, uh, meaning to say that God doesn't break the rules of nature, um, but the rules of nature are more profound and deep and powerful than you can poss- than we usually fathom. Yeah. So, as we <coughs> mature and change in our own idea about our relationships, 
with each other and with God, then our understanding of God changes. Correct. So God is changing as we understand God. Not only, not only as we understand God, but our relationship with God changes God. Mm-hmm. Right, so God, right, the 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 the, the fact that uh, um, 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 this is a, and the the Hasidic masters were actually uh, very sensitive to this. Even though, if you were to pick apart the theology, they would tell you they don't believe this. But if you read their writings, they do. Right, um, uh, um, I was just reading in in the Orinayim, the Chernobyl Rebbe uh, very often talks about this idea. Behold, um, Sarot. <coughs> that in all your troubles, God is troubled. Right? In other words, by virtue of being in relationship, um, um, God is pained when we're pained. Right? And that God is moved potentially to change the way God operates because of what's happening with us. Right? Um, or at least God is uh, um, um, uh, prepared to... Um, uh, uh, course correct on the next possible option for us because of the scenario that we're in, right? So, um, so it does mean that that what when we change, God changes because there's it's our because we're in a relationship with God. Um, so uh, the the whole picture right of God as being um, an an all knowing, unchangeable um, entity is uh, it, it, um, is is not what the process people believe. Um, um, but it, you know, it, it, it makes sense in some ways, right? If you, <clears throat> if the best way we can understand God um, is um, in in the context of um, of uh, of of the natural world, right? Which is, you know, the the um, even Maimonides, right? Maimonides doesn't believe that God uh, um, that all the anthropomorphisms we use to describe God are accurate for God, uh, but he does recognize that it's uh, that it's a helpful tool to understand the way God works, right? Um, um, or at least the best tool that we have to understand the way God works. And so, if in our relationship with not only other humans, but everything in the biosphere, right? My relationship with, uh, with well, with, with this table has an impact on the planet because it means I cut down trees and I, you know, I, I, I took somebody's home and, right, um, all, those, all those things. Are true. So, um, and, and the way we interact with each other changes each other, right? So if all of that is true, then it must also be true that for a God that is both within and without the cosmos, that uh, something that changes in me um, will also change God, even if it's only a very small amount. It will also change God. So, yeah. And I don't want to jump to the end of the article because I don't know what it says, but I don't think Rabbi Artson, he's not suggesting, though, we shouldn't be praying with a classic. No, yes, he de- right. He doesn't suggest that at all. He may, he does suggest that maybe we should be doing more than just pray with the with the classical sidor. Uh, but uh, but he definitely, I think, makes a compelling argument for uh, for what we're doing with the sidor and why it's a worthwhile thing. Yeah, and he's not saying rewrite it like the reconstruction. Correct. Correct. Right. He, he's 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 very much a traditionalist in, in this way. He, he believes that the traditional structures um, uh, um, uh, are actually um, you can keep all the traditional structures and that they're that they work better with a process understanding for the most part. Right. Some things you have to reinterpret. Some things you have to drop. But for the most part, the the, the classical formulations um, uh, um, either 
already had sort of uh, process um, assumptions that underlied them, even though they weren't identified that way, um, or, or harmonized very well with it. 